to reach this. Once you get to the summit and you see that view, it's, it's suddenly all worth it. And you forget about all the pain that it took to get you there. You can just look out and you can see for miles around. And the view is just spectacular as you see God's creation. And it's a view that really uh, no pictures ever really do justice. You ever been to the top of a mountain and you're like, oh, I've got to get a picture of this. And you even do the panoramic thinking you're going to capture something really special. And you get home and you're like, eh, you know, you've got to be there. You, know, you really had to be there to, to really appreciate the view from the top. It's a view that only those who, who put in the work of getting there are, are privileged to see. Now, I know that there are some mountains, Mount Washington in New Hampshire is one of them, where you can just drive your car to the top, no sweat, right? Or you can take the ski lift or the gondola or whatever there is, right? And you can, you can get that view. But I think uh, having done both of those things, hiked the mountain and taken the, the car or the ski lift up, I think, I hope you can agree with me here, but it's just not the same, Right? It's just not the same when you put in the work of getting there and you see that view. This morning we come to our second summit in our summer series, uh, Peaks of Grace, I'm calling it. And in this sermon, we'll be visiting Mount Moriah. And we'll see how, for Abraham, the journey up this mountain with his son Isaac will lead to a view like no other. A view that was completely unexpected and would become the source of his greatest joy and his greatest hope. So let's not delay any longer. Let's get hiking. So grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 to 14 together. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find today's passage on page 19. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me if you're able And follow along with me as I read out of respect for God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his Young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but... Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both, or so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word together this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see more than words on a page, but that we would have eyes to see the wonderful things, the beauty of Christ, and be transformed by it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Abraham's story actually begins 10 chapters earlier in chapter 12 when God calls him to leave his homeland and to follow him to a place that God hasn't even told him about yet. Just follow me and I'll show you. And God gives Abraham a bold promise. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, we see this. God says, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? That's a big promise. And the next verse simply says So Abraham went as the Lord told him. And so Abraham's journey begins here with the Lord. And he was about 75 years old at this point when all this happened, and his journey would include some significant highs and some low points, some low valleys. We're told in in chapter 15 that Abraham uh, was counted as righteous because he believed the promises of God. But highs like these were not without some failures in the valleys of faith. When Abraham feared for his life in a foreign land, he lied about Sarah being his wife to protect himself. And in chapter 17, when he still had no children, he took matters into his own hands and conceived a child by his uh, servant woman. This is often how it is. There are always valleys next to the hilltops of faith. There are ups and there are downs, but through them all, God grows our faith. Over the course of the next 25 years, God would reiterate and elaborate on seven different occasions his bold promise to Abraham as reminders, as encouragement. But as the years passed by and and Abraham and his wife Sarah remained childless and, and began to wonder how it was that God would keep his promise to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars and the sky, if they still didn't have any children. Then one day in chapter 17, 
when Abraham was almost 100 years old and Sarah, his wife, is pushing 90, God told them in one year's time they will have a son. And his name would be Isaac. And that it was with Isaac and through Isaac in particular that God said he would keep his bold promise to Abraham. It was through Isaac that God would keep his promise to him. And so it came to be in chapter 21, Sarah conceives, bears a son. His name is Isaac. And finally, they hold in their arms the hope of God's promise being fulfilled. And then we arrive at chapter 22, our text today. This is the very climax of Abraham's story where God would test his faith in a very unexpected way. So as we ascend this summit to Mount Moriah, the Mount of Provision, I'm going to make three points along the way. And the first is a crisis of faith. So a crisis of faith. The first one tells us that God is testing Abraham, but instead of this test breaking him, it would take him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. And by faith, Abraham would get a glimpse of something truly spectacular. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's put in the work this morning of, of hiking to this summit. Look at verse 2 with me. God could have just said, hey, take your son and offer him to me as a burnt offering. But he didn't say that. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. God's not trying to be cruel here. Rub salt into Abraham's wound. He's testing Abraham. God is not doing this to, to learn something that he doesn't already know. He's testing Abraham to grow his faith. To show him something spectacular. Abraham finally has his promised son and it's clear that he loves him. But does Abraham love Isaac too much? Does he love Isaac more than God himself? In talking with people about Jesus over the years, it's not uncommon for someone to say something like, hey, if I become a Christian, what will I have to give up? You ever hear that before? Talking with people? Am I going to have to give up this? Or does it mean that if I decide to follow Christ, will I have to do that? You see, for, for many, the decision to follow Christ becomes a negotiation when they, they say they'll come to God as long as he doesn't ask me to do this or to stop doing that. They're not really coming to God as God at all. They're saying, this is my God and I'll be happy to pray to your biblical God and attend your worship services as long as he protects my real God, doesn't mess with my real God or can help me get more of my real God. See, one way you can think about what your God is is to ask, what is your non-negotiable? Whatever that is, that is your God. So in part, this test is designed to reveal more for Abraham's sake who his God really is. God is weighing his faith in the balances against human affection Love for his very son, his only son. But faith is also being weighed against common sense 
and against his lifelong hope. Not only does Abraham love his son, but all of his social and spiritual hopes are centered on him. How is it that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham through Isaac if Isaac is dead? This doesn't make sense. For the first time, Abraham is confronted with a conflict between God's promise and God's command. Now maybe you've been there before where you cannot make sense of something in your life that God has commanded or that God has allowed maybe some degree of suffering perhaps or loss and you're not sure what the way forward looks like. It can be disorientating or even paralyzing. Maybe you're unsure if you can still trust God. What do you do when you find yourself in that place? What did Abraham do? What kept him moving forward? What drove him up that mountain? Look back at the narrative now, beginning in verse 3. Abraham rose early. He didn't waste any time. He saddled his donkey. Now, this is interesting. He, he's, a, he's over 100 years old. He has servants. He could have had his servants cut the wood, but he took the time to cut the wood himself. The very wood that he would lay his own son on. And then it takes him three whole days to arrive at the point where he can see his destination from afar. Notice the amount of time that goes by. And he had all that time to think, to wrestle in his heart. And all the while he continues to move forward. What is it that's driving him? He's not dragging his feet By the end of verse 4, I think he's figured it out. Let's explore this in the next point as we continue up this mountain. This next point is called motivation, the motivation of faith. So as we come to verse 5, we can know that Abraham has worked out this apparent contradiction between God's promise and God's command. Look at it with me. Verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice here, Abraham tells his servants that, that he and the boy will go on without them and to worship and they will both come back again. You see, I don't think that Abraham knew all the particulars at this point, but he trusted that God did. Here he's, he's expressing a rock-solid confidence in God's character while at the same time being open to God's methods. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he knows that he and the boy will return. And it's fascinating to fast forward to Hebrews 11 because we learn something of what Abraham was actually thinking. Look with me at Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and get this, 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is astounding. Without any historical precedent, no one's ever been raised from the dead before at this point in human history. It would happen on a few occasions, but this isn't even something that's happened. But yet it enters into the thinking of of Abraham. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God would be able to raise his son Isaac from the dead. This isn't what God actually did with Isaac. But the point is that Abraham trusted that God would do something. Even if he didn't know what that something would be yet. Now the text doesn't say this. So this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but I think it's not a reach. One thing I think Abraham might have done in that three-day journey to Mount Moriah was to rehearse in his mind all the times that God repeated and expounded on his promises to him. To the point where he knew the character of God and knew that a contradiction was not compatible with God's nature. A contradiction wouldn't make sense. So the only reasonable conclusion was a miracle. A miracle. Because a miracle is consistent with God's nature. But a conflict, a contradiction isn't. This is how it is when we feel stuck in our faith. And and to obey God just doesn't make sense. and, And there doesn't seem to be a way forward Remember God's promises and know his character. Remember his promises. Know his character. We only get that from being in the word, church. We've got to be in the word to be reminded constantly, daily, because we're so prone to forgetting the very character of God and the promises of God. Consider the Israelites who fled from slavery in Egypt as Pharaoh's army was pursuing them and they were pinned down with their backs against the Red Sea, there appeared to be no way forward and the people freaked out. They're playing the blame game. Why did you bring us out here, Moses? Bring us out here to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. We're all going to die now. Here comes the army. There's the Red Sea. We're trapped. Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14, after Moses, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And this is interesting because here in our text we see Isaac is silent, standing firm and trusting. He's younger, he's stronger, he's faster than his father. He could have escaped if he wanted to. And so we see this point repeated twice in our text. Once in verse 6 and again in verse 8 where it says, So they went, both of them, together. The son trusting his father as his father was trusting God, believing that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. 
This is what drives Abraham up the mountain. It wasn't brute determinism saying, I can do it. I must do it. And he musters up all the strength he can to just force himself to do this horrendous thing. It's all about my obedience. That's not what drove him up the mountain. No. It's not what's in his heart. When Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb? Abraham tells him, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This is what got Abraham up the mountain. Not, I can do it, I must do it, I will do it. No, God will do it. God will provide. Many misapply this text and they make this story all about obedience. We've got to give it all. We've got to be... You know, we've got to put it all on the altar, right? We got, it's all about what, what we have to do. But this isn't the point of the story at all. The saying uh, about that place that we see in verse 14 was not, on the mount of the Lord, I will do it. No. It's on the mount of the Lord, God will provide. And that's just what God did. As Abraham raised the knife to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord stops him. And verse 13 says that Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. He lifted his eyes and looked. But what did he see? His view from the summit would change his life. This is my final point from the summit of Mount Provision, Mount Moriah. What Abraham saw. First, it's plain in our text, you can see it, everyone can read it, that Abraham saw the ram caught in the thicket. God's immediate provision of a substitute for Abraham to offer in place of his son. This is what he saw. But I believe that from the summit of Mount Moriah, Abraham saw something more. There's an interesting thing here in our text the theme is undoubtedly God's provision, but, but the more common way this Hebrew verb is translated is to see. So instead of reading the Lord will provide, it could also be read as something like the Lord will see to it. Now when it says that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, the Hebrew word for looked is that same word for provide that we see again and again in our text. So what's the big deal? Why does that matter? I think it matters because just as the Lord's provision is is the major theme here, I think that we're meant to consider a a sub-theme here of seeing. We need to go to the New Testament, though, to look at something amazing that Jesus says in John's Gospel. In the midst of a dispute with some religious Jews, Abraham is brought up into the conversation. And look what Jesus says about Abraham in John 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. This is amazing. Jesus is telling us that Abraham actually saw Jesus' day and it caused him to rejoice and be glad. What is it about Jesus' day that makes people glad? Look at John chapter 20. After the resurrection, 
Jesus appeared to his disciples, and this is what happened in verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When, they had, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were what? Glad when they saw the Lord. Did you catch that? They were glad when they saw the risen Lord. All throughout history, God's people have been asking the same question as Isaac. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Do you ever wonder why God told Abraham to make that three-day journey to the to mountains of Moriah? I, th- I think it's because he was showing off a little bit in a good way because Mount Moriah would be the future location where Solomon would build the temple, a place where sacrifices would be offered. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices were not actually sufficient to pay for sin. They merely pointed forward to a more perfect sacrifice. Now, when Abraham looked and he beheld the ram, I think that he also saw what John the Baptist saw in John one twenty nine, when it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this moment, on Mount Moriah, I think God opened Abraham's eyes to see that all of these events pointed forward to Jesus' day when God the Father walked with his son up a nearby hill, the Mount of Calvary, walking with his son, his only son, whom he loved, carrying wood on his back, but this time, God did not spare his son. I think that Paul had Genesis 22 in mind when he wrote what he did in Romans 8:32, saying, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And in this moment, in Abraham's heart, I think that he perhaps turned God's words to him in verse 12 back on God For now I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And even more, without the concept of, or with the concept of resurrection already on Abraham's mind, I think that he saw the risen Christ too. He rejoiced and was glad. You see, what what Abraham saw that day was not just that God provided a ram in the moment, but that God would provide for the future of humanity's greatest problem, sin and death. This is why Abraham names that place the way he does. Notice the future tense of the verbs in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Will provide. Shall be provided. Not the Lord has provided, or on the mount of the Lord it was provided. No, the Lord will 
provide. Abraham saw this. He rejoiced over Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad, and he named this place accordingly, looking into the future, believing that God would provide for our greatest need. Hundred percent of people die. There's no corner greater that we could ever be backed into. We all must face it. And it seems that there is no way without God in your life. Death is inevitable. It's like that army from Egypt with their backs against the Red Sea. We're gonna die. No one cheats death unless you trust God who made a way when there was no way. By trusting Jesus to forgive your sin, to give you eternal life because he promised the solution when he died for our sins, the sins of the world, and rose again. Trust Jesus to provide for you in this way. And you'll have forgiveness. You'll have life. There will be a way opened up for you where death is not the end. And this leads to rejoicing and gladness along with Abraham, who saw the same thing. And if you're already a Christian, but you're lacking joy today, might I suggest that it's because you've forgotten. You've forgotten. Remind yourself of the gospel promises of God that are yes for you in Jesus Christ and rejoice again with Abraham. Be in your Bibles daily where these promises drip off every page for those with eyes to see them. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this this incredible story at the summit of Mount Moriah. We rejoice this morning with gladness along with Abraham who saw this centuries before. You are a good God. We rejoice in knowing that when there seems to be no way, you make a way. We thank you that you are a God who provides this not dependent upon our obedience, but that you will do it. You have done it and you will continue to do it. Help us to trust you, Lord. When we find our pla- ourselves in, in places in life that are hard and we feel stuck and we're not sure how to make sense of what you're doing in our lives, may we trust you, knowing your character. Father, we thank you for your revealed word to us that tells us of your character. May we hunger more for it, Lord. We hunger for so many things. And sadly, your your word takes a a backseat to so many other things at times in our lives. God, give us a hunger, a, a growing hunger for your word that we might know your character, that we might live as joyful people in this world. If there's one thing that the world looks at when they see the people of God in this church, may they see that we're a joyful people with a joy that that confounds 
when they see the, the suffering that we endure and yet have joy, may that draw them in to want to know more of you, Jesus. Make us a joyful people as we behold Christ more and more together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.